0: Good to see you guys again. It's been a while. A few years, a matter of fact, and to see so many familiar half-faces, as I, as I, I guess under the mask, it's the rest of you. I think that's great. So nice to see you guys again. Uh, again, it has been a while, and I've been looking forward to this ever since I received the invitation, and glad to have a chance to be a part of it. I've loved what you've done with the place. It looks great. Everything is just wonderful. These are unusual times. I've got that. It's a little bit uh, rare. Did you ever think you'd be wearing a mask in church? A year ago, did you think this would be happening? There are a lot of things that are different now. Uh, our church, back in Hopewell, uh, we decided to try drive-in church for a week. Um, people loved it. I mean, absolutely loved it. I can't get them to come inside. So, I mean, we still, our parking lot is just packed on our Sunday morning drive-in service because they figured out, you know, they can wear their swimsuits and Thursday day with their breakfast, drink coffee, do crossword puzzles and who's going to know differently, right? And so they can just every now and then look up and go, mm-hmm, like I'm seeing through, what's going on through. And so they've really enjoyed it. So we started walk-in church. We have some people who come, but for the most part, they just want to make sure that the parking lot's okay. As a matter of fact, last week, one of them came when they were driving out, because we will take their money, you know, I mean, so we do do have a little basket on a stick, so we will take their money before they get too far, and they're saying, so when this virus thing goes away, can we keep driving church? (laughs) Please. Yeah, we can. That sounds good to me, too. I don't mind climbing a scaffolding and preaching on a Sunday morning. That's okay with me. These are interesting times in the life of any church. Gaten is one of those churches that's just like everyone else, any other church. This time we have together that is so unusual is an absolutely phenomenal time in the life of the church because we get to figure out what's really important to us, you know? All the peripheral things that we considered uh, critical, all of a sudden they're gone. We don't have those. And yet we find out we're still church. We're still doing church in its most wonderful form, in its purest of forms. And so... We need to understand that in times like this and in any other, God's plan for you and God's plan for the church is not to survive it, just to hang on by our fingernails and keep going. This is an opportunity for us to thrive because when you deal in a world that is rocking and reeling and you talk to a world that is insecure and struggling, this is the hope. This is the hope. The church, you are the hope. My comments today are directed specifically to you. But without going into detail, if you'd take these comments and Translate them into the life of a church as well. I want to talk to you about your identity. Your identity as individuals, your identity as the congregation you'll do on your own. And so, realizing that, when I want to start with this this year, you did not have the privilege of putting a kid on a school bus and saying, Hey, remember who you are. How many of you, however, dropped a kid off on a college campus somewhere and driving away with tears in your eyes that the student couldn't see, said to them the very last thing? Now, I can't give you all the details. I've spent all these years giving you rules and regulations and guidance and all these things I could possibly do to put my fingerprints on you. The only thing I can say to you at this point is, remember who you are. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And that's where we'll be this morning. The first three chapters of Ephesus are all about identity, telling you who you are in Christ. And then the other details about how to live that out are the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters along the line. But Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus to say, guys, remember who you are, even here in Ephesus, because you are the hope of this city of Ephesus. So this morning, here's where we go. We start with uh, Ephesians in the third chapter, this one word, remember who you are. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide, how long, how deep is the love of Christ. Where are you rooted? Be rooted, grounded in God's love, he says. There are all kinds of places to be rooted. You need to be rooted in God's love. What do you know about tap roots? So most plants, trees, have a major root that just goes... Vertically, right? Straight down. And then there are peripherals that run off horizontally across uh, after that taproot grabs hold. So the taproot goes down looking for nutrients and looking for water. The best example I could think of of a taproot is a carrot. That's just a taproot, really. But a very efficient taproot that goes down and pulls in all this moisture, pulls in all of these nutrients for the little plant that's up top. A white oak tree is another wonderful example, because that taproot goes so deep. Some trees have taproots that go deeper than the tree is tall. And the reason that taproot is so important, not only is it on a mission to find nutrients and moisture, it's the one thing that holds the tree in place when the high winds come. When the storms assail, when drought strikes, every life has high winds. Every life has drought. Where is your taproot? How far did it go? Did it get sidetracked heading off on the sides somewhere, playing in something else, looking for something else? But if your root goes deep, if that taproot goes deep, you have the security to be the solid answer for a world that is shaking, rocking and reeling of all that's going on. You are the hope. So, where do we put our taproots? Because that defines who you are. Your identity is wrapped up in where you send your taproot. Does it go sideways? Does it stay shallow? Where is your taproot? Is it rooted and established in love? So Paul writes to Ephesus, and understanding the church in Ephesus is not necessarily made up of the high dollar people, Ephesus is an amazing city, second largest city in the world. At the time, so easily a quarter of a million people, no problem. It is a city that was put in place and raised to the highest elements by Alexander the Great. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew that Ephesus was the powerhouse. And so, one thing that he did do was build an amphitheater. That amphitheater held 25,000 people. I mean, imagine that one going to see a play. 25,000 friends, no sound system, no nothing like that, and there they are. But he wanted to make sure that while you were in that amphitheater watching the greatest plays of the greatest actors in the world, from that vantage point you could also see the gymnasium where all of the amazing athletes are trained for the Olympics and the like. You can see the libraries that were built to promote Greek culture. You could see the Agora, which is a marketplace about the size of two football fields side by side where they sold absolutely everything that humanity could offer, including humanity itself. They would sell people. But in this massive marketplace, you could see all of that. And While you're looking at that, that's his way of saying, this is our pride. This marks who we are. You need to be grounded in our pride. You need to be grounded in all of the grandeur and the affluence that we have here in this city, Paul's writing to the church saying, oh, guys, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in that. Your roots need to go some other place. Your roots need to go deep into Christ Himself. The temple of Artemis was in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. All the statues, all the grandeur, people would come from all over the world just to see this temple. Paul would say, guys, that's not where you need to ground yourself. That will not be the root that holds you in place when the world shakes. Don't listen to the voices who are calling you in those directions. So to this new church plant, he's saying, stay grounded. Don't be impacted by the affluence, the power that is there. In our culture... We have the same problem in dealing with the things that Ephesus dealt with. For example, did you know that we spend $183 billion a year on marketing, and television, and online, and those kinds of things? $183 billion trying to get you to buy a product to tell you that this product makes you somebody. If you want to have affluence, if you want to have power, you really need this particular product. And they're given over to convincing you that this is where you need to be grounded. Anyone who has this product is grounded. They're safe and they're secure and they're somebody in the world will stand up and notice. There's even one car company that uses the word envy in it. You may have seen it. Hey, be the envy of your friend. When you drive down the street, make your friends envy who you are because you have this. It marks affluence. It marks power. Be careful with that one. $331 billion we spent on clothing. That's more than the gross national product of a lot of countries like Israel, Costa Rica, those kinds of things. Why? Because someone tried to convince us that if you dress a certain way, it exudes power, it exudes influence, it exudes affluence. Be careful, Paul would say, don't get caught up in that one. To give you an idea, we spend $310 million a year on pet costumes for Halloween. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, although I will say that our 100-pound Rottweiler made a really good SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) $310 million. It's amazing, isn't it? This is what affluent people do. If you want to be somebody, if you want people to look at you and admire you, this is where it happens. Paul writes, oh, please, don't get caught up in the game of rushing after affluence, rushing after power. That's not where you need to be grounded. Then what about material things? I went not too long ago to buy a pair of jeans. When I grew up, we ordered all of my clothes out of the Sears catalog or the Spiegel catalog. Anybody remember that? Which I thought was unusual because we had a Sears store in my hometown. I don't get that. My hometown, by the way, do you watch HGTV? You know, um, Aaron and Ben Napier, Right? that's my hometown. It really is my hometown. (laughs) But for some reason, we bought everything online except for jeans. For jeans, we would go to Mr. Shirley's dry goods store. And you walk into the counter, and there's Mr. Shirley. And my mom would say, I want this size of jeans. And he would turn around, take them off the shelf, sling them down on the counter, and we would buy them and go home. And I put them on, and they're a little too big. And then she would make a cuff about that long, you know. and you wonder, Mom, does, do we really have... You'll grow into it. Really? I'd have to be like seven foot six by the time I was 10 to fit those jeans. But it happened all the time. Every year, that's exactly what happened. And so the other day, I decided to buy a, buy a pair of jeans. And so I decided this time I'm going to buy my jeans from a store that does not also sell groceries and tires. So I went into a real store. I was very proud of myself. Went into a real store. And the first person I see in there is this little girl. She's, I'm thinking she's probably about... 12 years of age, I figure she's in there buying back-to-school clothes with her mom and whatever. Couldn't find out I was wrong, she actually worked there. And not only that, worked in the men's department. So here she is, sachets over to me, starts talking to me, and she sounds like a smurf, okay? <laughs> Good morning. What are we shopping for today? Well, I feel uncomfortable speaking for you, Barbie, but as for me, I'm looking for some blue jeans wonderful. What kind of jeans? Blue. I mean, that's the reason when you asked me, I said blue jeans. No, silly. (laughs) When she started laughing and giggling, her voice got higher and it got louder. You could hear the dogs howling in the distance. You know, No, silly. Do you want them on the waist? Do you want them on the hip? Do you want straight leg? Do you want boot cut? Do you want flared? Do you want slim? Do you want skinny jeans? Do you want relaxed jeans? Whoa, relaxed. That sounds good. I like relaxed. What is that? She said, well, you know, they're a little fuller in the thighs and a little fuller in the bottom. You might want to consider that. (laughs) I'd like to take issue with her, but facts are facts, you know. So I'm going to let that one go for the time being. Okay, so we settled they're going to be relaxed. Do you want those stone washed? I don't know anything about stones, but I like the idea of them being washed. That's good. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm a minister, you know. I know those things. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to go that way. So um, one last question: frayed or hold? Yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, you got to tell me what that would. Be. Frayed. You know, he dogs. Frayed. You know, they're usually a little threadbare right here, usually in the thighs, and sometimes on the pockets, but it's usually in the thigh area. It can be everywhere because they're all unique, you know. He. So okay. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Hold means they actually have holes in them, and that's usually in the knees and sometimes in the pockets as well, and the holes can be anywhere, but it is usually gathered around the knees. And so let me think for a minute. You're telling me you want me to pay you for jeans that are threadbare and have holes in them, when the reason I'm in here is because my jeans back hole are threadbare and have holes in them. (laughs) Sir, she says with a great degree of disgust, and not only disgust, but a little bit of disrespect. Sir, that's what everybody. I'm hearing. Oh, and by the way, I told her. Well, never mind. I guess I don't need jeans. My jeans back home were just fine. Who knew? Just give me two T-shirts. Two T-shirts. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Would that be a crew neck or a V-neck? Do you need that in a scoop neck? Who knew men wear scoop necks? And you know, does that need to be in lycra or in cotton? Yeah, I just walked out. I just I'd had enough. Went down the street, bought a pair of jeans, two T-shirts, a watermelon, and windshield wiper blades. So. <laughs> what I'm hearing her say is, you know, everybody who's anybody dresses like this, you know, you have to have these things, the material things that are going to grab you and hold you. This is where your taproot needs to be. She is so wrong. It has nothing to do with material things. Did you know that statistics say now that three-fourths of the garages in America do not house cars, there's no room for them? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. Because I know the fourths of you would have to say that that's the truth for yours as well. And then what happens is you have all of these things in the garage, the material things that somebody told us we couldn't live without. And now they've made their way out of the house because we don't have room for them anymore. Now they sit in the garage taking up car space until someone in the family decides enough is enough. We need to move this stuff. And so you go out and rent A storage space, which is a $27 billion industry in our country, by the way. You go rent a storage space and move everything and all the effort that it goes to lug those things and put them in storage where they stay until you get tired of paying for them month after month. And then you call 1-800-GOT-JUNK and they back a truck up. And for a sizable fee, they load everything up and take it to the dump where you continue to pay for that dump as long as you live in that particular county. And it goes on and on and on. Material accumulation is not the answer. No matter what it is, no matter how grand it is, that cannot be where we're rooted in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that the world tells you this is the safest place to be. E.E. Cummings writes this. There is a struggle, a fight to be nobody but yourself in a world that wants you to look just like everybody else. It is a fight to be yourself. Isn't that sad? But there's this rush. Hey, where is the hope if we give in and our taproot stays where the world sends its taproots? You are the hope of the world. You are the light the world. You are the salt of the earth. We need you grounded, solid so not only can you survive when the storms come but that you can be the voice of hope in the world who so desperately needs to hear it. Then there's the body. When Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he's writing in a difficult culture because they just worship the body. Their gods for example are in physical form and if you see Particular athletes around the area, those are the heroes. Those are the wonderful people. Their bodies are sculpted just right, bronzed by the Peloponnesian sun, not an ounce of superfluous fat. All of that makes them the ideal, and they point to the ideal and says, this, this is what you need to look like. This is who you need to be. And the world just shakes with disappointment, heartbreak. That's not who I am. Why should it be who I even want to be? There's pain, there's shame, there's neglect. That translated into our culture. You may have found yourself on the outside looking in a few times. And it gets worse. In that particular culture, in the highly developed culture, the Greco-Roman culture, in that highly developed culture, they had a practice called... Infant exposure. So if a child was born, and there was something wrong with this child, maybe a deformity, maybe just looked a little odd, maybe was acting a bit strange, they could take this child out of the city, up the side of the mountain, the hill, and leave the child there to die. In that advanced culture, that was acceptable. You know why? Tap roots in the wrong place. It's all about the body. This one will never match. This reflects poorly on me. And they would leave them to die. Picture that one. There is news, however, that if you happen to want a child, couldn't have one in that culture, you could go up that hill, find an infant, take the infant home, Raise the infant as your own. Later on, it would be a time when you could formally adopt. That would be in front of a judge and you would have to say, all right, I raised this child so far, I want this child to be a part of my family and the child has to be able to give consent to say, I want to be a part of this family. And then adoption is then official. But you can rescue a child. Imagine that kind of culture. Imagine in a culture that has that kind of disrespect for different our church is a part of the Tim Tebow foundation night to shine you know that's a prom for special needs folks and I'm telling you it's my favorite night of the year it's the Friday night before Valentine's Day every year and hundreds of special needs folks come in and for every hundred people who are there special needs folks who are there we have a support staff of 300 to make this event run And it's a dance. It's just, it's a prom. A prom they never had and would never have any other way. And they range in age from 13 to probably in their 80s. But it is a night to remember. Not a one of them would exist in the Ephesian culture. Our culture has the danger of sending our taproots in the wrong place. We need to be careful with that. Keeping in mind that Paul would say, remember that, Ephesian church. Remember that and listen to what he writes. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In other words, hear this. Society may have taken you and taken you up the hill and left you, but God Himself climbs the hill looking for you. God Himself comes looking for you, and when the rest of the world says worthless When the rest of the world says, damaged, he looks at you and says, blameless, wonderful, mine, I want you. He came looking for you. The friends in the church at Ephesus so desperately needed to hear that. They hung on every word, but it's the same church today. The same church today that says, don't get caught up what the world wants. The world needs us. They don't need us to be like everyone else. They need us to be God's people. They need us to be rooted. They need us to stay where we are. They need us to be solid when the winds come and the droughts come. They need us. You, friends, light of the world. You, friends, the hope of our area. He's not going to leave us exposed. He comes and finds us. And that's such wonderful news for the church at Ephesus and such wonderful news for me and for you. God hasn't forgotten us. So if your identity, you feel like in Christ, your identity as a believer, your identity in life itself is blowing around like a tumbleweed in Texas, you need to know you can be grounded. Not only can you be, you need to be grounded because God has plans for you all across the way. Some three words I just want to give you this morning. To give us a little bit of focus. One is rest. Rest in this promise that God has given to us. Again, in Ephesians, the first chapter, Paul writes this. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, long, deep, and high the love of Christ is. I don't know how you grasp that. How do do you know how much God loves you? Well, I want to go to one of my favorite verses in Zephaniah. Listen to this. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you get that? Your God sings for you. He's so excited to have you in his world. God sings over you. Doesn't that do something to you? God sings over you. He ran up the hill for you. He went looking for you. He found you. And it brought such delight to him to bring you and to cradle you in his arms and says, you are mine and I am yours and this is the way it's going to work. And he sings over you. That's how exciting God is to have you. Isn't that amazing? Rest in that. Rest comfortably in that. And then resist all kinds of temptations to say, hey, you know what? There are all kinds of temptations that come your way, but you don't need to fall prey to them. All kinds of voices calling you this way and that way. But you don't need to give in to that. Again, trust God. First Corinthians, Paul writes this, "...no temptation has seized you except what is common to men, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear." And when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. Nothing's going to come your way that you can't handle. If your taproot is in the right place, let it shake. Let the winds come. Nothing's going to hurt it. Resist. Stand strong. And if you find yourself wobbling, you know there's a root, a taproot problem. Third word. Reflect. Think about this. Just think about this, in Genesis. So God created man in his own image, in his image he created them, male and female he created them. So let's go back to creation for a moment. So God created heavens and the earth and animals and all these wonderful things and he looked at them every day and said, you know what, that's good, right? That's good. The sixth day creates humanity and the relationship of humanity of the rest of created order, God looks at that and says, that's very good, that's very good. But then we chose to send our tap roots in other places, trying to put it in the wisdom of man, trying to put it in material gain, trying to put it in power games. And the relationship with God is broken, and so he invests himself to making a way. And when the time comes and society has done what it does and taken you and left you, on the hillside, on the top of the mountain. God came running and looking for you and said, I want to rebuild you in Christ. And then my very favorite verse in all of Scripture is Ephesians 2.10, which says you, Paul says we, but he's actually talking about you. You are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for you to do. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's handiwork. Look at the person on your right Look at the person on your right. That is God's handiwork. That is God's masterpiece. Look at the person on your left. That's a piece of work. No, that's a piece of God's work. That's a piece of God's work. That's God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. But you get the rest of the verse. He's not saying, I just made you and I'm so proud of you. You are God's masterpiece. Created to do good works, which I prepared in advance for you to do. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's saying, guys, when people come to the temple of Artemis and they see all of the statues and they see all of the art and people are just in awe of it all, Paul says to the church, no, 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 that's not masterpiece. You are masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. And don't forget that one. Reflect on that. Hang on to that. That, friends... It's where your roots need to go. Reflect on that. And so, we need to recognize that we are chosen by God Himself. We are rescued by God Himself. We are loved by God Himself. We are remade by God Himself. He came up the hill to find you. That's where our hope is found. He rescued you, and He went up a hill, and He went up the hill for you, and He sacrificed His life for you, so that He found you, and He gave His life for you, and He wants us to remember that even today, when He was with His disciples. He called them together and he shared with them some lessons and he talked to them about things that were so important. Then he just said, You know what? Let's remember this. I will climb a hill for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance. And in the same way, he took the cup, blessed it. Father God, your blessings on this cup and all who partake on this day, that we may remember the sacrifice that was made, that we may remember that you climbed a hill for us. May this be a symbol of our life. Paul would say, this is the bloodshed for the remission of sin. Christ Himself would say, This this is my blood. Take and drink, and this do in remembrance of me. All for you. You are the hope of the world. Now may the grace, the peace, The love of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus abide with us all both now and forevermore. Amen. Love God, love others, make disciples, serve the world. Thank you for your time this morning.